Well, good evening, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 67. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Our guest in just a little bit is Brian Sonia Wallace here on Skype. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. Um, we've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Um, if you love poetry as much as we do, please click on the like button and share and um, all that good stuff because that's how the, the uh, computers know to share the content that we're doing. So um, if you click something, computers will know that you like this and then they'll show it to other people who might like this and then more people will like this and then the poetry liking just has this whole snowball effect and that's excellent. So do that right now. If you're not subscribed, subscribe now and uh, we'll be good to go. So um, for the warm-up poem today, as everybody gathers around and gets ready for a great night of poetry, um, I want to let everybody know that the deadline for the Rattle Young Poets Anthology, uh, which is an anthology of poems by um, poets age 15 and younger, and it comes as a chapbook uh, with a summer issue of every Rattle. Um, the deadline for that is December 1st. We moved it up a couple weeks um, because I forgot to send my reminder email about it, to be honest. Um, but I did, and so let's move the deadline up a little bit. And um, the deadline's going to be December 1st. So if you know of any young poets who are age 15 or younger, um, it's an excellent way to break into publishing. And um, it's just beautiful to see the way that kids write and engage with the world. Um, they're just, kids are so insightful and um, have surprising sort of how much they absorb and how much they understand and have to say. And um, so I thought for the warm-up poems, I will do two because they're really short. And um, this is from the first Rattle Young Poets anthology. These are... Um, this first one is Chloe Ortiz. Uh, here we go. This is, um, she's age 14. And this is Twine, a prayer, from uh, the 2014 Rally Young Poets Anthology. Twine, a prayer. God is a rope, long and thick. It pulls us out of the water. The roughness burns our skin. We continue to climb. The waves are still splashing. Our hands are red and we shout to God. We feel his leniency, strong and continuous. Then, with a flick of his wrist, we are flung back into the sea. And that's Chloe Ortiz, age 14, Twine, a Prayer. Just an amazing poem. And when we get submissions like this, if you've read the Rattling Poets anthologies, you know how amazing these kids are. And here's, this may be my favorite one. Um, this is uh, Frank Colasacco. And um, his father, John Colasacco, is a poet, too, and sort of followed him around with a, with a recorder. And, he, and, the, and his son, Frank, would say, I'm, I'm going to write a poem now, Dad. And then he would recite this. And then Frank would just transcribe it. Or, uh, or John, I should say, would transcribe it. So this is Frank Colasacco, age three, from the 2014 Rally Young Poets Anthologist. This is Bob the Bear. Bob the Bear breaks himself, and some balls come out. And that lamp comes out, and a daddy comes out, and a hammer comes out, and a nail. And Bob the Bear hammered the nail and fixed himself. That is Bob the Bear by Frank Colasacco, age three. So, uh, you know, um, you know, I have kids who, my kids are six and ten now, um, but they write amazing poems, and they've been in the Rattle Young Poets anthology too, I have to say. Um, but if you know kids who um, write poems like these, don't um, let, me, let them go to waste. Don't put them in a drawer. Send them on to Rattle by December 1st, and we'll publish some of them in uh, the Rattle Young Poets Anthology coming up. Now, um, let's get on to our featured poet for today. Um, Brian Sonia Wallace is the, fi uh, the, the founder of Rent Poet, 
Um, and his new book just out, I'll put on screen right now, is The Poetry of Strangers, right here. It's a, it's a beautiful, he calls it a book of essays, but it feels like a memoir. And um, I really enjoyed reading it today. I spent, I didn't mean to, but I spent the entire afternoon reading it. It's a great book. So check it out here from, um, who's it from? Harper Perennial. And um, Brian Sony Wallace um, in 2012 set up a typewriter on the street with a sign that said poetry store and accidentally started his business rent poet. Uh, over 5,000 poems later, his book of essays, The Poetry of Strangers, profiles the communities he's written for across America and the desperate desire to be listened to and heard that he found. Excerpts have been published in The Guardian and Rolling Stone. He's been the official writer-in-residence for unlikely clients like Amtrak and the Mall of America. Um, Brian so Sony Wallace has also just been named Poet Laureate of West Hollywood. And uh, here he is, Brian Sony Wallace. How are you doing, Brian? Hey, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much um, for, for joining us. Um, do you want to start out with a poem just to, to kick it off and get sort of in the, in the spirit of literature? I will. I was I was thinking about what to kick things off with, and I think this is the right mix of sort of uh, perverse and not uh, not too far kind of up itself. Uh, a lot of the these poems that I'm going to read tonight um, were written for other people uh, at a typewriter, and because we're on video, I'll do that and show the show the mandatory gimmick. Um, and so uh, this poem, I think, was written at the Bootleg Theater in L.A. Uh, at, like late night at one point, someone came up and asked for a eulogy. Uh, so people come up to me at the typewriter at different events and things and, and ask for poems um, and didn't have a specific eulogy that she wanted, but wanted a eulogy. So this is eulogy for a poem. Cause of poem. Unknown. Time of poem. 8.18 p.m. Rest in poem. Poem. No priest, no scientist, no daughter, mother, warrior, no breath. I scalpel, I formaldehyde, cutting away extraneous moments, preserving entrails, raising them up, giving them voice. Here lies poem, survived by us all. Excellent, Brian. So do you want to start out, too, by um, just telling the story of how this came to be? Um, like, it was 2012. So paint the scene here. It's 2012. Um, how did you, where did you end up with a typewriter, first of all? Was that something that you always had? Did you always write in a typewriter, or was that something new, too? No, it was a totally new thing. So I, yeah, I um, I am a, a sort of mid, mid-generation millennial um, and had totally, I'd kind of come of age with the internet. Um and had never used a typewriter until 2012. Um, and the first time I ever actually, I think this may, this may or may not be factual, um, but I'm going to say it. The, fir the first time I ever used a typewriter was doing this practice, was writing poems for other people. So they're really closely associated in my mind with that. And I actually had a, um, I'd come back to LA, uh, had finished school, and I really wanted to be a theater director. That was kind of what I was dreaming of. Um, and there was a, a theater company that had a theater truck because it's LA where one side of the truck folded down into a stage. They were per doing something at a festival and they said, well, come do something at our truck stage. And I didn't have anything to do. Um, but I had heard a, a story about someone doing this with a typewriter. And so they had a typewriter that they let me borrow. And I set up next to the truck stage into like a solar powered DJ at a, a Metro opening in downtown. Um, 
and that was the the sort of beginning of it all. Um, and then it took me a while to get my first typewriter. I did a lot of little like I, I thought of them as like urban interventions. Like I'd get together with friends in the park and we'd like write poems and we'd post them on like street poles around the city. So these ways of trying to engage using poetry as a tool to engage with other people, which I, I think that I'm I'm suspicious of poets sometimes because I'm like, you know, you are you are using this tool to engage with yourself and that is valuable, but how are you engaging with you know other folks? Do you remember where like the idea came from to to go actually on you know and busk with poetry? Was there something that sort of triggered that for you and said, "Hey, that's something I could try"? Um... I mean, really, it was it was the the whim of doing it once, and then I did it a couple of times. Um, was sort of like, "Oh, these typewriters are fun." And then uh, in 2014, I'd gotten uh, laid off uh, from sort of two jobs in a short period of time. And was looking and interviewing and coming up second in all the interviews. And I got to the end of about six months and um, was considering taking a, a minimum wage job at a candle store to just pay my rent. And I was had been like doing a lot of Kickstarter fundraising for plays. And I was like, I bet I could do like a poetry Kickstarter. So that was really how I first thought yeah. about it. I was like, can I pay my rent for a month with poetry? This month you know, limit that Kickstarter has seems to seems to work to like make you do things and also make other people respond. Um, so that was how it that was really how it started. And then at the end of the month, I was like, well, I'm done with this. Like, I'll go back to making theater. And people were like, no, we want enough. We want you to be the poet guy. And I'm like, <laughs> I guess I'll, I guess I'm the poet guy. OK. So so in the story in, in the book, you tell the story of um, the very first poem you wrote, um, which I think everybody's probably interested in. Do you want to, can you tell that story too here? Oh, sure. I mean the, the, yeah, well, let me, let me, can I read it? Yeah. Yeah. I, Go I, ahead. I said, it, I said it better. So this is the book. It's the poetry of strangers. I think it's also in, in something. And let me uh, know the page you turn to and I'll turn it to, so people can read along. Amazing. Uh, so I think we're starting on page three. Okay. And this is this is a bit of essay, but it's, it was fascinating working on this or memoir, as you call it. It was fascinating working on this, uh, writing lots and lots of poetry, and then suddenly switching in a huge way to nonfiction. And it was interesting to see the things in this that came. I mean, the, all of the essays come from the poems, and some of the poems are embedded in the essays as sort of like almost rough drafts. Mm -hmm. Is almost how I think about it sometimes. Anyways, page three. I idly typed on a piece of paper to calm my nerves. No sooner had I started writing than people drifted over, curious to see the typewriter and then bemused at the prospect of finding a self-proclaimed poet behind it. Do you need a poem? I asked them from under my Newsy-style flat cap. I'd done acting and wore this hat like a costume, like armor. I wasn't me, I told myself over and over again. I was the character of the poet. If people rejected me, they weren't rejecting me. They were rejecting this character that I was playing. But people stopped almost immediately. Old folks to reminisce over the typewriter, curious kids and their parents, couples on dates. I asked each of them the same question. Do you need a poem? I don't have any money, replied a buzz-cut Chicana woman with tattoos peeking out wherever clothing met skin. That's okay, I replied. About my dad then. Her answer was instant. He was a long-haul trucker when my brothers and sisters and I were growing up, so he wasn't able to be around much. She drifted into stories of her dad, her family, 
reminiscing about her life and relationships to a complete stranger on the street while throngs of people passed. My dad would be gone for weeks at a time. Uh, but he'd do it to be able to send money home, she told me. I just want him to know that we, that I, understood. And that we loved him for it. She stopped and stood in silence. I wondered if this story was a weight she'd been carrying for a long time. My fingers struggled to muster up enough force on the rusty keys of the typewriter in front of me to smash the tiny hammers into the ink ribbon and onto paper. I quickly discarded the ten-fingered typing we'd been assured in school was the secret to success and went back to hunt and peck. As I typed each line, the typewriter would skip ever perilously closer to the edge of the cheap TV tray table, threatening to topple off. I'd have to pause to wrestle it back, turn the knob, pull the carriage back, start a new line. The C stuck. The spacebar sometimes skipped and left two spaces. Any hope I had at formatting the thing was gone. It would format itself, thank you very much. My index fingers labored over the keyboard, each keystroke an exclamation of permanence. Um... I don't didn't keep any the just a little bit more in this story. I realize how long essays are when you read them. Oh my goodness! I will say I have one poem that you published in Rattle last year as part of the Instagram Poets uh, edition, and it was a, a typewriter poem, and it is really cool in writing them that you you can have some intentionality with getting to the end of a line, but really the lines end where your paper ends. And I write on sort of three by five cards, so there's not much space. I love I love those sorts of constraints in the writing. Um, okay, the end of the trucker's daughter. I didn't keep any pictures of the poems I wrote back then, so I'll never know what the first poem I wrote for a stranger said. I remember images of truck side mirrors, endless lonely roads buoyed by thoughts of family back home the road itself becoming a vein through which blood flowed back to the heart. And I remember reading the poem to this fierce woman, peeking up to see her eyes closed. It was a first draft, imperfect, riddled with the errors of a 60-year-old machine and a 22-year-old poet, but it was hers. At the end, she took a deep breath in, then opened her eyes and looked at me. She took her poem, Expression Inscrutable, Wait here, she said, and vanished into the crowd. I moved on to write for someone new, a middle-aged woman in festive summer clothes who fawned over photos of her dog with me at the typewriter. But then the trucker's daughter reemerged from the mass and pressed a crisp bill into my hand. I had to go to an ATM, she told me, by way of explanation. Her tone was gruff, but I could see something had softened in her face. The trucker's daughter didn't look like she had much, but her $5 was much more than $5 to an unemployed kid looking for something to hold on to. It was an affirmation. In this world bound by money and scarcity, this world where it's hard to find the words to tell someone how you feel, what you mean, she was sending me a message. What you are doing is worth something. And that was from the, the first essay in The Poetry of Strangers by Brian Sonia Wallace. Um, I think later, maybe in that essay, if I remember right, um, you, you mentioned that um, what you realized there was that poetry could be a kind of service industry, I think is, is how you put it. Um, so so what, what do you think the service is that you're providing? Um, 
Like, I think um, that's the most fascinating thing to me. Like, why do people come up and want you? Like, the, it seems, it, it, you, you know, you mentioned several times, like, being nervous um, about whether or not somebody would actually want to have you write a poem, you know? And then it sounds like, reading the book, that no matter where you go, everybody always does. Um, so, so why do you think that is? Like, what is, like, the actual service um, that, that it is? And, and why is there, like, a need for that? That's, like, the fascinating thing about, about this book and this subject to me is just that, that like, need that we have. Um, but, but for what? How would you – what do you think it is? I mean, I think it's uh, – in the way that I do it, I think about it as a cross between, um, like, therapy and fortune-telling um, – and I think that there there are elements of, of both of those things in there. Um, but I think that the, the big thing for me is that it's it's about listening to the other person. Like one of the things that I find the most fascinating is what I write really has very little impact on the reactions that people have. So people aren't necessarily reacting to my writing. What people are reacting to is the act of being asked what they want a poem about and then being listened to. To be like, what is your, I don't know, what's the poetry, poetry changes nothing? Like, to be asked, what what is the thing that you think that you love, that you hate, that you're working on, that changes nothing, but that you're working on, that maybe you're not sharing with anybody else? And so there's this sense of, I think, um, you know, it's not like deeply held secrets. I've had a couple of people tell me really profound things, but mostly they just talk about their families or their dogs or their the future and what's coming up or how stressed they are. Like it's sort of just like the unspoken day to day um, that I feel like comes into that. And that I, I do think, I mean, you know, it's cliche to say at this point, cause we're in quarantine. It's, you know, we were already shouting that we were disconnected and isolated and all that crap before quarantine. And now we're like, well, more of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, do you want to read, you know, read another poem and maybe tell another story about it? Or um, what do you what do you want to do next? <laughs> Let's go from here. Yeah, oh seriously. Yeah, yeah. I try to like like I get in trouble with these um, podcasts where I just want to talk, but then everybody says, "Where's the poems? We want poems if we talk too much." So um, so sh- right, let's right. share some other poems too. Sounds good. So I'll do a I'll do a poem from the book um, that's in one of the essays. Uh, this is page sixty one. Um, and so one of one of the sort of bizarre things that happened as a result of setting up like a scamp on the street with a typewriter uh, is that I started being able to say, well, I do this weird thing. And it wasn't necessarily like traditional literary places that were receptive to that, but it was everyone else. Um, and so ended up doing like corporate gigs for all sorts of like tech companies and uh, working with the national parks and working as God did a residency on Amtrak, which is in the book and then a residency at the mall of America, which is a mega mall in Minnesota. It has a full amusement park inside of it because it's the frozen North and everything has to be inside, which is frightening at this moment. Um, And yeah, it was the, the mall's 25th birthday they were like, well, having a writer residency for our 25th birthday and the media was like, you're not books, sit down. And I was like, I do a fun thing where I have a typewriter and they were like, sounds good. So I sent pictures with my application, like nothing that you would be able to do at a traditional, you know, poetry establishment. Um, anyways, uh, this poem is for the guy who was the head of PR 
um, who was my sort of de facto boss while I was at the mall, my poetry boss, um, poetry daddy. And uh, yeah, he talked about his son and um, he had been a single dad and had raised his kid uh, solo growing up and they were really, really into Disney World. Like everyone at the mall is super Disney fanatics. Um, and I asked what their favorite Disney story was, and he said Peter Pan, the boy who never grows up. So that's uh, that's what you need to know for this poem. And I should say the titles of all of these poems are just the people's names that they're written for. Um, so it's pretty common. And maybe if I go back and revise it more, I would change it and mess around with it. But this is terrifyingly and permanently a first draft for Bryce, who never stopped believing in fairies even when all the evidence pointed in the opposite direction. We were lost boys, both of us, growing up together despite our best intentions. Nothing gives me more pride than seeing you with Franklin, the grandkid, taking the time to teach him to fly. Every parent's wish is for their kid to grow up, to be better than they were. As you begin your journey into fatherhood, I am beaming. We have faced our crocodiles. They will not stop us from coming back for more. There is no one I would rather not grow up with than you. And that was uh, for Bryce from uh, the, the Mall of the America section of the book. Um, I should say, if anybody has any questions for Brian Sony Wallace, just leave them in the chat windows. To remind everybody, I am watching Facebook and youtube but not anything else so if you're if you're watching anywhere else you can't leave questions go find youtube or facebook because i can only have so many windows open at once but um but i'm happy to pass along any questions um that we have for um for brian sony wallace um so so brian one of the interesting things is the sort of the constraints that you have um writing poems in this way like not only are you like given the subjects um but you're also you're confined to the size of the paper that you're using? Did you say it's a three by five card? I think is that what you said. I started. I have a confession. I started uh -huh. on three by five, but I've moved to four to four by six. Oh wow! <laughs> Your secret is out now. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but you're con you're constrained by that size, um, and, and 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 sort of also pleasing people too, right? Like you're writing in a way that you're trying, as opposed to like, I, I think um, most poets when they write, it seems like just talking to them over the years they're, they're writing to sort of please themselves like for their own delightment at like the way they're playing with language and like the little leaps of their imagination but you're not doing that which is it's just very uncommon um among poets you're trying to make somebody happy with your poem i assume right um so so how does that like change the way that you write like like what what are the and the typewriter too with the with, you know line length and things like that um do you find that you have like a style and like a thing that you go to um how, do, how does that all like play out as, as a poet you know yeah oh man that's such a i hadn't thought of it in quite those terms before but it's totally i i've been thinking over the last couple of days i'm like i think i'm a people pleaser and then i'm like yeah like this is this is the epitome of that right um, something that I talk about when I teach. So one of the, uh, another thing that has come out of being a weirdo on the street with the typewriter is people saying, yeah, I trust you with kids. Um, and so I, and I've been, been teaching for a number of years now, but, um, 
I'm, I work as the manager of education at GitLit, which is a, a mostly spoken word youth organization here in LA. And um, one of the things I always tell the students with their poems when they're writing is take care of your audience. And I think it's something that really comes from more of the performance poetry side of the world rather than the page poetry, because in page poetry, you can um, kind of read through pages and pages and have a few poems of sadness and a few poems of uplift and different things. But when you're performing, you're really building a narrative arc for your audience. You're going to take them on a journey, right? You're going to start off angry and then you're going to have a moment where it gets serious and self-reflective and then you're going to leave them on an uplifting note. And so I think I, I have this, because I have this performance background, I think I think in that way kind of naturally. And so when I'm thinking about, and, and I've been writing, working more with composers and writing more for music, and I'm like, I think, and, and taking classes in poetry, which is I hadn't done before. It makes me very embarrassed about my writing because um, people are really good and thoughtful. But I, I think I make poet, like, first and foremost as an improviser and as a musician. Like, I'm interested in rhythm. I'm interested in sort of the journey of the poem. And then if we're talking about, like, clever moves with language or, you know, really fresh metaphors or any of that stuff, like, that's the newer territory for me. That's where I'm still really cutting my teeth. Um, but that idea that what you're doing is you're sort of playing someone a song and, like, you don't have to have the song all the way written, but you know if you shout in their ear, you better have a good reason to shout in their ear. And like in some context, that's appropriate, but not all of them. And sometimes I do. Some of my poems are, are I occasionally will give people a lecture in their, in their <laughs> poem, but that's equally an, an intention toward an audience, right? Um, so, so Danny Mask here asks, um, very specific, um, how long does it take you to write a poem? Like, like if you're set up there, say at the Mall of America, um, how much do you, do you like assign a certain amount of time? And then do you take notes when you're talking to the person? Do you write a first draft while you're talking to them? Just like, how does it actually work? I think everybody's curious. I'm curious too. How does, how does like, like you talk to somebody and they tell you like, like their life story or what they, you know, what they want to be saved in a poem or whatever. Um, and how, how does the actual process work and, and how long does it take too? I love the, how long does it take question? Danny? <laughs> it's, it's what like, all event organizers want to know because this is mainly who I'm talking to about my poetry is event organizers. And their main question is how long, how fast do you write it? <laughs> uh, which I think is an interesting metric to be judged by as a poet. Yeah, um, well, if you took like, you know, like two hours to write each poem, then it really wouldn't work for a, a corporate <laughs> office party. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I tend to, I, I tend to say it's 10 to 15 minutes a poem. If I have a huge line, mm -hmm is a great problem to have as a poet. I can bang out like four to, you know, four to eight line sort of pithy to profound one, one metaphor, one story, and we're done. Um, I can, I can do those in probably three or four minutes, but I mean, it's interesting you think about like to think about time as a formal constraint as well. And the poems that I write in three minutes when there's a long line and I'm like, you know, and often there's like a DJ playing right next door. So the person sort of shouting their story at you and you're kind of listening and then typing. And that makes it's just a very noisy, like clamorous process, um, which I think is very different from most poets writing conditions. And I'm an eternal procrastinator. So I think it really helps me to be like, you have three minutes to write this poem and this person's going to watch you. Don't take another sip of your coffee. Oh. Don't go to the bathroom. Don't make a sandwich. Write your dang poem. So, otherwise so they're, I, they're actually sitting there watching you most of the time? Like they're, they're watching you type away? 
That, well, would be, and, that seems like so much pressure. I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> and often they continue to talk to him. Like, and that's my favorite thing, actually, oh, really? is like you'll get, you'll get a juicy detail from them. You'll be like three quarters of the way through the poem and you'll get stuck and they'll still be telling, like, <laughs> still be telling you their life story. or telling you like more nuances of one thing. And you're like, oh, there's an image from that. Oh, the canoe. When you were on vacation in Canada, the, you know, the snow-capped mountains. Yes, that's how this poem ends. Oh, wow. That, that's so cool because I um I have this like thing where I feel like if I'm going to be interrupted I find it really hard to write like if there's the possibility, so I try to write after everybody goes to bed because like nobody's awake no one's gonna interrupt me and like break up my flow, and I have some weird like anxiety about that while while I'm writing um but but that it seems like a great exercise at least to um get rid of that sense you know I, I you know you hear people writing in cafes and stuff like that and saying how the the noisy commotion ends up being a positive. Um, it's just, it's just hard to imagine that. Um, another thing I'm wondering too, reading the book, do you have, um, are there times where you're like really proud of your poem and you have like a different reaction to it than the person who's receiving it? Or are you sort of on the same page? Like, are you sort of embodying the person? Um, you know, like, like, is there ever like a mismatch? Um, you know, like, do you ever think like this, this person's really going to love this poem and then they don't or like vice versa. You're like, Oh, I'm having so much trouble. And then, it, and then they love it. Does, does that happen too? Yeah. Every now and then I'm at a, I'm at like a, I'm being, I'm being paid to write for a party whose primary purpose is to appear on Instagram. Like it's a photo op, you know, uh-huh. and I'm like part of the photo op and like people will come get poems and I'll, I'll like be in the mood to work. Cause sometimes I'm also not in the mood to work. You know, sometimes I'm like, I've got a metaphor about a ship and an ocean and a mountain and like maybe someone's the captain and that's sort of what we're doing tonight. Like my brain, my brain has those things on lock. And sometimes I'm like, but what if there's, you know, a cactus and a cartwheel and a flamingo and, and try to surprise myself a little bit more. And the worst mismatches are when I'm trying to surprise myself and the people who are there are like, and this is usually like one in 10 people, maybe like people by and large are really lovely about poetry when approached in this way. Um, but every one in 10 person, one in 10 person, that's grammatically terrible. (laughs) Every one in 10 people, I guess. Yeah. The the one person in the 10 people, Mm -hmm. um, will sort of be like, Oh, like, thanks. And sort of wander away. And I'll be like, no, did you not see the freshness of that metaphor? Did you not like, did you not like the, the, the amazingness of that line break? Um, and often I, I, I like my writing for formal reasons where the person who's receiving it is really hearing their story. And often sometimes the story gets in the way of writing. Like sometimes there are too many metaphors and they all jostle next to each other or too many images because they've been telling me their whole life mm-hmm. or they've given me nothing. Conversely, they've given they've been like, want a poem about love? And you'll ask them follow ups and they'll be like, just love. Are you in love? Are you looking for love? What's going on with love with you? Oh, you know, but then they usually do open up. Like if you follow up with them, they, even those people tend to slowly divulge. So uh, Mary Ellen Carr over on Facebook asked a related question. Kind of, She says, um, are there poems that you were embarrassed to give to somebody? Um, are there any poems that you seem to write more about yourself than them? Like, does that come up where you sort of identify oh, I- so much and you, you're writing about yourself? All, all, at all times. Um, I have, so 
one of the things that kind of led to the the WeHo laureateship is two years ago, um, I worked with the city to start up a group called Pride Poets uh, that does this practice, but kind of on scale at Pride. So we've got like 15 queer poets now who all take to the streets with typewriters in June. And um, one of the Pride Poets, Natalie, says it brilliantly, and it's in the book, but she says, I, I talk to the person until I find myself, and then I write that. And I love that idea so much that there is what you are looking for in that other person is is just that connection, is that point of connection. And that's the thing that I think the book is about in that like weird, intangible way where you can't really say it. It's like, wait, how do you find that connection? What does that look like to sort of see see yourself into someone? Um, what was there's a second part to that question, right? Um, yeah. Um... Well, there was the, oh, are you, um, the first part was, are you um, embarrassed to give somebody the poem that you do? Do you ever feel that way? All the time, all the time. <laughs> and the best, this is the other mismatch, Tim. The best is when they like weep and they're like, oh my God, I'm going to cherish this forever. I'm going to give this to my, you know, mother. This is going to be so meaningful in my life. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like that, I, I you know. I was 12 poems in and that one just didn't come out well. Yeah. Well, um, I have so many questions for you, but I don't want to skip like sharing poems too. So, um, let's, let's do another poem first. Um, yeah. what do you, what, what do you want to do next? I, I feel like this is sort of appropriate in talking about this, where this is a poem that I wrote. Um, and immediately after I was like, Oh, that's, uh, you know, that, that came out well. Um, and it's the poem that Rattle published last year. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, um, I'll find it. Do you want me to? I can chat you the link. Or no, I, I have it right here. It, it's a good. Okay, game. cool. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So, so yeah, uh, introduce it and then and go ahead. Cool. So, this one, uh, it's called "My Gift Is the Sculpture," which is just the first line. But I was doing an event um, with uh, Pen America, writing poems outside. And it was over. And this always happens whenever I tell, this is the other, it takes five, like, you know, 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes to write the poem. But also the event where you say you're going to write poems for three hours, you always write for four hours and sometimes five hours. And there's a sort of like trance state that I think you can go into in doing that, uh, that I find really liberating and cool. And you start playing with things because you, you, you're boring yourself with your normal crap. Um, so yeah, this woman comes up to me after and I'm like, Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. We're actually done. And she says, Oh, that's, that's fine. I was going to give you a sad topic anyway. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, no, you, you have something you need to tell me. And she talked about, uh, her husband who had really recently passed away and she was, she was grieving him. One of the, the sort of groups I've gotten to be friends with in the last couple of years is hospital chaplains. Cause I think that there's some, that was the third thing. It's a therapist, fortune teller, chaplain is kind of the trifecta where I'm like, I think I'm between these things because it's, it's sitting with people's what with it's sitting with what people are going through. It's walking with people on their road and not being judgmental about it. Um, so yeah, her husband was a sculptor and this was the poem for him. My gift is the sculpture. No one bought clay me in your molding. And when you're gone, I'll find myself fired quite unexpectedly. I'll mix my media until I can't tell glass from steel. 
until I don't know where you end, where I begin, except that you are gone and I am still just brittle shapes and colored beads. It's okay. Sad, anyway. Years of strokes, gifts, built up great variety. It's okay. October is okay. When your shape is fixed, all a sculpture can do is lose a nose or arm. The museum doesn't replace them, just displays in as-is condition, just calls the collection antiquities. And there's my gift is the sculpture from uh, rattle number, what number was that? That was rattle number 64, the uh, Instagram poets issue. Because, of course, um, as Rent Poet, at Rent Poet, um, Brian, Sonia Wallace has a uh, Instagram page where he posts a lot of these um, stories and poems. Just a wonderful thing to do. Um I just, I feel like kind of like geeking out a little bit here because I feel like, like I um, live, I'm sort of like studying the structure of poetry, like in a lab here. Like I get these like samples in and then I'm trying to see like what's going to work in the world. And like, but then Love you that. are like Jane Goodall out with the gorillas, you know, <laughs> people. like people. you are, like, you know, like what I'm trying to figure out, like what poems are people going to like love and appreciate and remember for the rest of their lives? You know, like that's what we want to do at rattle. And I'm trying to sort of always juggle this, um, like, like make it creative and interesting for people who like read a lot, but also find poems that are interesting for, for people who don't read much poetry. Um, and there's one section in the book where you mentioned there's like four features of a poem that works. Um, so, so I just maybe expand on that, but like what, what makes a poem work for people? Like which poems do you think are successful and like why um, for, for regular people that, that don't usually read poetry? It's just such a fascinating thing to me. Here's my formula. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book. Uh, I, I think that, and I came up with this like way at the beginning, which is funny, but it's kind of stuck in my head. Um, you have to have something uh, familiar so that people can see themselves in the poem. And even like that poem, there are so many moments where I find myself tempted to like stop reading and comment on it. Because I'm like, oh, you don't know this. But she actually was a bead worker. Her husband was a sculptor. She was a bead worker. He was never commercially successful but like loved the art. Like there's, there's this backstory that comes with each of these poems. That's not, my intention isn't to tell that story to anyone else. It's the person reading the poem comes with that context. And so the words mean something different to them. Um, but something familiar, uh, something surprising. So just the opposite, something that kind of, you know, makes you wake up, uh, something beautiful so that you know that it's poetry I think a lot of people, if you're just like some of the very like conversational poetry that I read now, that's brilliant and technical and awesome. And I'm like, this is an essay with line breaks, you know, um, people don't recognize it because it doesn't have the tree with the red flower and it doesn't have the crane on the lake and it doesn't have the orchid and like have the orchid. Why not? You can have an orchid. Um, something. So something's familiar, something strange, something beautiful, and a joke. And that's my final element. I think every poem, if you want people to, uh, I mean, I guess it comes back to the people pleasing, right? Like if you want people to like you, you have to be willing to almost make fun of yourself mm -hmm. or to, to play a little bit or to show that you're not, 
even if the theme is serious, like the theme of the last poem is quite serious. Um, but there's still some sort of surprising turns of language that in my head, at least are lighthearted where I'm like, this is kind of a fun sentence, you know, it's not all, it's not all that, that sound. Yeah. You mentioned in the book that the, the reason why that's so important. And I just, I just found this fascinating is, is because it, it sort of lets people know that it's not taking itself too seriously. And uh, there's a way sort of in this culture, at least in this, in this era where poetry is up in this ivory tower. And I think the reason why people don't allow themselves to appreciate it is because they think that it's too lofty and maybe like over their heads or maybe, you know, and so the, the adding of a joke, um, you know, like brings it down and like makes fun of itself. And so sort of lets it all be lighthearted. I thought that was such a, a great insight into, um, into, into what, what works. And I think depending on the joke, like some of, not as much anymore, but like certainly at the beginning, a lot of times, like whatever music I was listening to would make its way into the poem. And it was like top forties hip hop radio hits. You know, it was, it was not anything, uh, super obscure or cultured. Um, and having that point of connection, I think there's this like meeting people where they're at that I think that particularly with poetry, because people aren't taught to read the line breaks and like, we just, they're so scary, you know, unless you really are like, okay, two lines and then two lines and oh, this word's here. And what does that mean? Like it's, it's puzzles. It's like word, word nerds. Right. Um, but I love the idea that all of that kind of, um, like laboratory, you know, there's like the lab science and then there's the inventions um, that kind of people are using where it's like, well, I needed a vacuum. So great that we know about suction. Um, but those those people aren't necessarily the same. So I, I think I'm the vacuum maker is what I'm saying. Um, yeah, One thing that I would imagine, you know, with my little Petri dishes here is that um, that you would get your <laughs> most... Um, I would imagine that your most common uh, response um, to, to poems is, hey, this doesn't rhyme. Um, does that happen a lot? Because I haven't come across, um, I don't think many of your poems rhyme, if, if at all. And, and I get that from, you know, like I try to um, get copies of Rattle to like, like our plumber, you know, I'd be like, we have a book of, you know, we have a, you should read this poem um, about plumbing. You know, we have a great poem about um, the plumber's nightmare. And, and our plumber was over here, you know, a couple of years ago. And I gave him that. And I was like, you should read that poem. And he said, you know, well, it doesn't rhyme. <laughs> do, but so, poem. I know what a poem is. Yeah. So do you get that a lot? Or do people sort of understand, um, you know, modern free verse, as it were? It's so funny that you bring that up. I get that never. I've never really? had something hmm. you're like, but this doesn't rhyme. I have had people, and I hate these people, um, who are like, I want it to rhyme. Hmm. Um, because it's like four times as much work for me and the poetry is never very good because like composing on the spot while trying to rhyme the ends of lines with a limited space that auto breaks your lines for you when you get past a certain word count and like keeping meter in an improvised way that still advances a storyline or an emotional journey is hard. Uh, you, you need a little lab time, I think, for that. You know, I have a lot of like... I, I play a lot with like near rhymes and I play a lot with like non ending rhymes and with like changes in meter. And again, I think that's the sort of musician spoken word side. Um, but yeah, I haven't had anyone. And I think, cause I read it to them too. I think if I asked them to read it themselves, like your plumber, they would look at it and they'd be like words on a page. Don't want to, but 
after I type it, and I used to have a disclaimer that I no longer have as much. I think I've just grown out of the like self-consciousness around it. Um, where I'm like, I'm a better poet than I am a speller. So I'm going to read it to you in case I've misspelled anything. Um, and that reading then becomes important because they've told me a story and now I'm telling them their story back. And so I think that in a way there's a very like deep, I'm going to say the word primal connection to the oral tradition in that and to this origin of, of, of poetry. Facebook told me today that I should like Homer, that Homer might be one of my people to follow. I was like, what is Homer going to tell me on Facebook? Um, but I, I'm like, good call, Facebook. That's totally what I think in, in part is happening here, is that we're going back in some ways to a very a very ancient way of, you know, all of the great epic poems were just some guy telling a king how great he was so that he could get dinner. Like, I can do that. I don't have, I don't have ethical qualms with that. <laughs> Seems like the society we live in. Sure, you're awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to do you want to continue with uh, another poem? Sure, I can do that. Um, I'll read a poem. I don't know. Mm, no, I'm not going to do that one. It's it's sort of an it's like an electiony poem, and I've done a bunch of stuff with poetry and politics, but I think everyone's probably sick of that by now. I'll read it because I was just talking about um, you know Greek Greek stuff. Uh, this one, I guess, is a kind of fun example of, I forget whether I'd listened to this story on the radio or read it earlier that day, um, but they had a whole piece on, um, Pompeii and sort of, or no, it wasn't, it wasn't actually on Pompeii. It was on a city that had been like unearthed in someone's basement in Italy, like dug into this basement and they were like, oh, there's a just an intact city down here that we just built on top of. Um, and so this is a poem that I wrote in the midst of the California wildfires in the, in, I think it was 2008, um, at someone's, uh, what is a wedding reception is after the wedding. What's the thing before the wedding engagement party, engagement party. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was that. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we, there was another wedding that I had that evening that got moved because the vineyard that it was supposed to be in was on fire and we could see the smoke during this one over the house, but the, that neighborhood hadn't been evacuated. And so they were going forward with this, um, this engagement, uh, party. Well, yeah, our wedding, actually, we were, we, uh, got married at, at Alan's, um, house in Malibu. And there was a there was a there was a fire in the Malibu Hills that so the photographer and like some other people that were important for bringing stuff couldn't make it, and we were kind of like waiting and like do we delay the thing and that was like sort of our first introduction to um, the fire which just sort of consumes our life at this point. Um, right. Yeah. If if you're doing anything in California, make sure they they have like a force majeure and fire you know what to do in case of fire clauses. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, there was something interesting because even though it was like this lovely event, the poems were a little bit sharp and people talked to me a lot about the ways that their relationships weren't working. Like, you know, not in tragic ways or anything, but just like that was what was on people's mind is like, what is what is the smoke cloud? Um, and I didn't put the person's name in the book, so I'm going to I'm going to call this one. They dug under the city. They dug and it's page uh, 234. Sorry, Tim. They dug under the city, found columns rising from just beneath the basement. 
a quiet residential neighborhood of fragments that had lasted centuries. We too built our houses with stones from the temple, pattern mosaics from wine-stained amphorae, split in centuries-old wars, stand hurting and laughing on history. You have painted your face with ashes and glitter for the holidays. Sparkling, you tender sea glass between your fingers, finding the perfect fit for edges worn smooth, sand blasted transparent, longing to become whole again in new configurations. Man, that poem does not have a satisfying ending. That poem just stops, but I like the things it says before it stops. So, um, what is what has done that you've been doing this for eight years now? Um, what has that done to your sort of personal writing? Do you um, is this like your place where you write and then you don't write elsewhere, or do you um, write your own work? And do you find it hard to access yourself now? Um, telling pe- other people's stories for so long. Um, uh, oh Tim. yeah oh man okay yeah this is this is a great topic so i'm i'm working a lot on try on writing my own stories and on writing my own poems and that's something that it's it's taken me like six five or six years to really be like no i need to this is a wonderful tool that i've been using for other people and i need to use it for myself too like i need to take my own medicine and like it's really hard and really painful and like hats off to all the lab poets who are in there just like grappling with their own demons um you know, they're real scary. Uh, I think that, yeah, this idea of like finding finding yourself after being in dialogue with a lot of other people is something that I, I think about a lot. And I, I do think, you know, there's the we're the five people we spend the most time with kind of thing. And I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which this practice in particular has led me to meet so many people and to really deeply invest in their stories for a moment you know? Um, and I think I'm very good at that. Uh, but like, I'm trying to get better at, you know, like having regular phone calls with my friends and like making sure that I'm seeing people and like doing things other than poems. I mean, that's really what it's been is it's like poetry is this invasive weed that has consumed my life. And now I'm like taking three writing classes and teaching, a couple of different classes and still writing for events and sort of pitching and then trying to do this sort of civic arm with the city of West Hollywood and thinking about what does it mean uh, to work on behalf of a, of a city? What does it mean to say, okay, I want everyone in this city to have an experience with poetry and to have a good experience with poetry, you know, like it's, and to like, it's twofold, right? It's, it's everyone. And then it's also, and poets need to be supported because they're the ones who are going to do this. Like I, I talk about them in the book as, as missionaries, this idea that I, I think what I do is also sort of this missionary work for, you know, for the lab rats. Um, <laughs> like, have you seen over here what, what Tim's doing with this, you know, this, this, uh, this journal? Um, so uh, Kathy Hong over on uh, Facebook asked a question. I, it didn't occur to me, but it's, it's, I'm curious about it now. Have you ever refused a poem request? Is there anything you won't write about? I have. I remember it. It was North Hollywood. We were writing at a pizzeria. It was part of uh, NoHo Lit Crawl. So it was technically a literary thing. 
Um, and this guy comes up to me outside of the pizzeria. Oh man. And he says, would you write a poem that will make my girlfriend get back together with me? Oh, interesting. And I said, no, like I don't have that spell and I'm not, I don't know enough about your story to know if you'd like be responsible with that or if that's a good idea. It's like, I, I can write a poem for her. I can write a poem about your story. I can write a poem that is that is you asking her to take you back, but I cannot write a poem that will get her back together with you because that feels irresponsible. Who am I to do that? Yeah, like even, and even I if you could, I mean, could you know, yeah. like, what, <laughs> like that would be too much power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and also like, I can a poem do that? I, there are limits to these things, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so Daniel Mask asks over here, how has the pandemic changed how you do um, and what you do? Like, it seems like that would be, um, it seems like it's impossible now almost, right? Like, where are there crowds and, and who has office parties right now? So what are you doing now? And, and also, like, shut shut them down, please. <laughs> you know, yeah. no, I will condone that. Like, keep your filthy lucre. <laughs> um, it's been it's been different. It's been challenging. I mean, definitely, uh, my company Red Poet has been a backburner project, and I'm so so fortunate to have a book that came out in June. I'm like, oh, cool! I can do book things, and um, to have teaching, and to be able. A lot of this pandemic, I've been sitting with high schoolers and like helping them write down their feelings, which feels like a, a valid use of my time. Um, in this moment and that's been really beautiful and they've you know they've taught me a lot blah 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 teacher talk um all that stuff but uh it has um and I've been boning up on my skills like I said I'm taking I'm I'm taking three poetry classes or, or maybe I want to say I'm studying with three poets right now uh who I respect and who are very different from each other and that's been really eye-opening and really cool um to just get like work on getting better uh, I really believe that this is a period where laying fallow is not a bad move and and, and is, is fruitful, you know, in the end. Have you thought about uh, doing some kind of live streaming thing where you have like sort of office hours as Rent Poet and, um, you know, people, you can, you know, do something like this right here and, you know, have someone call in and then you write, you know, and we can see your typewriter as you go. I think that would be sort of compelling I've done it. Yeah. I, for all, for all that I'm like, I don't do as much anymore. I still do a heck of a lot. Um, yeah, I've, I've done a number of things and I have a number of things that I can talk about. One is, um, actually coming up this, uh, is it this Saturday or this Sunday, the 26th, um, at 11 AM Pacific time. I am hosting the second, cause we already did the first one zoom poets, zoom typewriter poets round table. Um, and last time we had about 30 folks from all over the country and all over the world who all do this weird thing at the typewriter, but in real space would never have been able to get together and to talk. And so to start meeting people and, and understanding their practices and their backgrounds and really thinking of this as a literary movement and taking it seriously in that way, because I'm far from the only one to be doing this. Mm -hmm. Like one of the reasons that I've been successful, I think, is because it's becoming known but it's still not over yet. You know, like event, event coordinators are still like, I just heard you can have a poet in the event. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I should with, say we, you know, the very first episode of the Rattlecast was, was Benjamin Elshire who does that from new Orleans. And, um, and then on, um, I think it's, uh, 
in <laughs> December 15th, Sky Jackson does the same thing, um, also out of New Orleans. So uh, we're going to have two more um, you know, typewriter poets or busking poets or whatever. Um, it, it's such an interesting thing um, to be doing. Um, Benjamin's so funny. He has no time for me. And I'm, I don't know why. But like, man, that guy hates my guts on social really? media. Yeah, we do. There is a little bit. And one of the reasons I'm doing this, I think maybe is because I have gotten some pushback and there is some rivalry and like typewriter poets aren't always friends. And Hmm. that's really interesting to me. That's really interesting. Uh, I'm going to have to um, pause for just a second. I've always thought this was going to happen someday. I have this silent clicking mouse and um, it's like no, no cord and everything. And um, the battery ran out. (laughs) So I have to get a new battery or I can't click on anything. So I'll be right back. Battery time. So you talk. Well, uh, right. t- tell a story I'll, or something. I'll read, a, I'll read a poem while you hunt for your battery. <laughs> um, oh, what, what poem am I going to read? Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll, read, maybe I'll read this. So one of the things I've been, I've been like working on in the personal poetry arena, this is not a, a typewriter poem, um, is... Uh, is writing poems that are more, um, that are just gayer, you know, like I'm a gay man and I write poems for everyone. And so that is, I feel like the side of me that kind of comes out to play the least in my writing, ironically, because like, yeah, poets, poets tend to be pretty vocal about their, you know, inner, inner stuff. Um, and I also have been writing recently, um, when I was uh, 18, I moved to Scotland for college and was there for four years um, and kind of didn't have a particular plan to come back to the U.S. And so that experience of, of kind of being, of, of displacing yourself, you know, like it's not even being displaced. I was like, you wanted this, you did this. And now, you know, and now you know no one. Who are you going to be? How are you going to show up? Um, so the working type, this is a new poem, working title for it is my skin is a tattoo of the places I've been. It's a terrible title. It'll get a better one. Um, yeah, my, my mouse is back so I can put it up. <laughs> yeah, mouse. All right. Okay. Um, and it goes like this. Arms. When did you last tingle this cold? Unbirthed into the North Sea as it spat sunrise and broke winter against our misplaced bodies. Pale and spotty 18-year-olds in bumfuck Scotland, all of us drunk on Tesco vodka, shivery, bewitched, belly aching for books, slurring distance or mystery, we huddled a horny mass, grubbing toward the hot chocolate that steamed from the Christian Union's pop-up tent under the ruined castle bluffs, proffered with thin fingers like a sacrament, like poison, like my mother, Dawn. I scratched out my American tongue to make space for Milky Builder's tea and love's labor's lost lines, say that five times fast, and salt sweet foreskins of boys with strange vocabularies. I made no plan to return. A decade later, I danced from a cryo chamber, negative 150 degrees Fahrenheit, with a reality star guru in West Hollywood arms tattooed for each transformation. You did so good for your first time, he tells me, eyelashes frosted white. You didn't even shiver. Excellent. And that was uh, 
my skin is a tattoo of the places I've been. And it, since I was getting my, um, my, my battery, I didn't hear the intro. I was wondering, that's one of my favorite poems that I've read of yours um, from, you know, the collection you've sent. Is that a poem that was your own or was that written for somebody else too? I was wondering that when we, uh, when I was looking at it. No, that was, that was, that was just me. And that's a yeah. new one. So I've learned some tricks in the meantime. Awesome. 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 Um, well, we're, we're coming up on seven o'clock, but I'm having a lot of fun. So we're going to do, uh, let's do two more questions and then, um, and then one more poem and then we'll, we'll wrap up a little, little late, but, um, um, so, so Kashiana Singh asks, um, have you ever not been able to write in the moment, uh, like a writer's block while you had someone waiting for a poem? Have you ever had that? Like, that seems like that's the thing that would like stop me from even trying this is like, ah, or is there yeah. a way you always find a way like the show must go on and it works every time? You, How does that? You just got to write badly. That's <laughs> it. That's it. You're like, I have nothing original to say to you. And I'm still going to like put something on the page. What helps a lot is I do really what I'm doing is a lot of found poetry. And, and someone had asked earlier if I took notes depends a little bit on the context if I need them or not but often I will have a page next to me and I'll be taking notes as people are talking and what I tend to write down is less uh like big story items and more specific phrases that strike me or specific word choices or like place names are great anything that they give me that's really specific to them because then that makes their poem really theirs and there's this sense of like sealing I don't know, I'm going to get Harry Potter with it for a second, but like sealing the poem to them, you know, like no one else is going to understand this one line. This one line is an in-joke for you. And that I think is, uh, is one of the reasons why I feel comfortable posting a lot of the poems I write in this way on Instagram, because I'm like, I came up with some lines that I liked and also half of the lines in this will only make sense to this one person and like won't mean anything to anyone else. And so it's not like a finished like the one that I just read. I'm like, this is a this is a poem that I have invested time in and have edited and have really gone through, and I, I think means something. I'm super excited about the way it, the way it means something. It's like being a lab poet. It's lovely, um, but it's a it's a different process. It's a whole different process. Um, uh, there's a bunch of more questions I wanted to ask, but but one of them I was wondering, um, do you think that um, there's something about this time that makes what you're doing work. Um, like you mentioned that I think it's somewhere in the book, you say like the commodity is presence um, and that, that you're listening, you know, like everybody's desperate to feel listened to. And there's a way that the technology and, and social media and like the way we distance ourselves seems maybe different. Do you think that, that if you, if you had a time machine and went back a hundred years, do you think you could still do this? Um, or is it something like, is it, is it human or is it like our time? No, it's okay. Yeah. Such a good question. Um, so there are people who do a version of this uh, in particularly like India and Mexico um, at like train stations and bus stations. They're still like on typewriters and they're there to write letters for people uh, who are not literate because sometimes you need to send a letter and I imagine now email has probably, you know, supplanted a lot of these people's jobs. Um, but a lot of people still don't have access to email. So they, you know, that's who they're serving. Um, to, for, for someone illiterate to say something to someone far away, right? That's it. Um, and in that case, usually they're directly transcribing. 
And I think there's a level of like emotional translation. Like I think that we as a society are so bad at telling each other how we feel that we need a stranger to friggin' intervene on our behalf and be like, hey, you know, this person kind of likes you, you know, <laughs> married to you for 40 years. Here's why. But it's so embarrassing to tell that to someone like since, oh, I haven't said this before, but maybe it's true. Sincerity has kind of become toxic, <laughs> which is something that I feel in contemporary poetry sometimes, too, where I'm like, OK, another, you know, sort of sassy glib poem um, that like I, I, I'm a big fan of of uh, and I talk about it in the book, like tackiness and, and kitsch and cliches and all of these like ways ways that people make meaning in their lives that are i think frowned on by uh people who consider themselves serious culture makers and i love the idea of of taking these things really seriously and saying no what if what if this is you know what if we put this in the museum what happens then yeah, it's interesting that uh, similar either um i don't remember if it was the interview in print or um the the podcast we did but pavana reddy the instagram poet that we interviewed for that issue that you were in um talk about how the the sort of service to, to call it a service that instagram poets provide is to um give sort of a way to say something but not really say it to like share your emotions but like let it have a little distance and um do you do you um like, is it poems for other people that you write a lot? And, um, you know, like, like I was saying, like, I want to write a poem for this person and then I'm going to give it to them. Does that happen a lot too? Like in my daily life? No, like in, with your, with your, uh, your work here. Like, are you write, sometimes writing poems that, that are like, I'm going to give this to the person? Oh yeah. About probably over half the time. Yeah. Probably yeah. two thirds of the time I'm writing, I'm writing poems that whose, who, that function is gifts. And I love that idea that I am, I am creating a gift for someone like what a nice way to write poetry. What a, what a, a beautiful intention. I love what you're, uh, I'll have to go back and look for that episode because I totally started writing poems in part because one time I caught my mom like reading my journal when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing exclusively in like short story fiction and poetry because it was a way to obfuscate what I was actually saying. Oh, and so I, I do like the idea of poetry as obfuscation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can't be too wrecked. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you want to finish out with one last poem before we go? Sure, I would love to. Um, what do we want to do? Okay. Let's see. Shall we be... Um, like, shall we be sentimental and cheesy, or shall we be... Wait, sentimental and cheesy. Let's be sentimental and cheesy for a second. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, when... Uh, yeah, when quarantine started, um, it was right before National Poetry Month, which is usually like one of my busiest months. And uh, I just watched this like thing that I had been, you know, building for the last six years, just like die because of the world. Um, and it, it, not not to, to be depressing about it. Um, and I've done corporate events on zoom where like people have signed up for a 15 minute slot. I'm super happy. It was, I think last week or two weeks ago, I did a, a, a like fundraiser for the American public health association. And I like wrote a poem summarizing the first half of their event and then auctioned off 
me writing poems for people at the event we raised like two thousand dollars and i was like oh like maybe this is a, a way that i can do this is thinking about because i think it's always embedding yourself in an event i don't want to have a poetry event because only people who like poetry come to poetry events i want to have an event that has poetry that people will you know you can sneak it on them um all that to say uh this is the first poem that i wrote in the pandemic um, it took away my writing completely for two weeks. Um, I'd been like in a classroom and we had to finish the residency two days early because they were like, we're closing the school. The teachers have to plan for, you know, remote forever. Um, yeah, and I still feel this one a bit as we're, we're at this stage of pandemic exhaustion. Um, they said stay indoors. And we nomads who'd lived on the salt of the road and the kindness of strangers, wondered what our hearts would eat next. We devoured books, filled every corner of ourselves with imagined worlds until we were whole continents. We grew mountainous in our solitude, so tall our eyes crested clouds, and we could see each other again, far off, just floating heads, and garbled voices in the thin air. May this book, and I was trying to grapple with coming out with a book in, in this time, may this book be a compass and a grandfather clock, a measure of time and weight in your palm, a presence in a world that's lost its body. I write to touch my thoughts, a friend tells me, append the bridge to the physical world. Eat well, stranger friend. When we meet again, we will each contain new multitudes. Thanks, so that was Brian Sonia Wallace with uh, a poem from uh, the spring. They said stay indoors, I guess we can call it. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. It's really been a pleasure talking to you and um, just, just getting all your insights into um, what you've been doing. It's really fascinating. Thank you so much. Likewise, I would love to, yeah, I would love to talk more about I, I, it's so funny because part of the weird thing about being interviewed is I'm like, but I, I'm the one asking the questions. <laughs> like, but what are you doing and how does it connect? And I'm like, nope. Keep it in. Another conversation, another time. Well, that's a lot of fun. Well, you'll have to write another book uh, soon and then we can have you on again. Will do. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Good to see you and uh, have a good rest of your night. Likewise. Thank you so much, Jim. Bye. Yes, that was Brian Sony Wallace with uh, his newest book, The Poetry of Strangers, a um, book of essays, What I Learned Traveling America with a Typewriter. It's available now from um, Harper Perennial. And uh, you can find Brian at um, his websites and, and social media. All of it is Rent Poet. So, um, you know, at on um, Instagram, it's Rent Poet. On um, rentpoet.com is his website so so find him there at rent poet and um check out this book it's a really if you're a if you're a lover of poetry um it's an excellent book excellent read and um you know i i uh couldn't put it down kind of today it was a really good book um a lot of stories with the different people we didn't even get into um the the all the different people that he um met along the way which is um part of the fascination with it so um if you enjoyed this conversation please do click the like button right now if you haven't yet um we're going to be going on in just a minute to our open mic show but um there's a lot of people watching live and um and um you know like like one fourth of them click click the like so click the like if you can i know a lot of people um 
don't have you know Google accounts or whatever, so they can't click like, and that's fine too. But uh, click if you can. I appreciate it. Um, now for the open mic, let's say goodbye to uh, Brian here and put on the open mic numbers. So the prompt for the week was to write a poem about contradictions, so sort of oxymorons and things like that. And um, if you wrote a poem for the prompt this week, email it, if you haven't yet, to openmic at rattle.com, all one word, that's openmic at rattle.com. Then um, send it to, or, well, send it by email, but then uh, send me a chat message to rattle poetry, all one word, over Skype, if you want to join by video. Or um, phone 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, then just hang up, and I will call you back when the time is right. Um, that's 818-850-7727. That's how we do it. Um, all you have to do is let it ring a few times. I have a call list, so we have um, Nivedita is here, Sally Dunn, uh, Brent Stoffer, Carla Schwartz. Um, we got a bunch of other poems by email. I have to go over to that email account first. Um yeah, we got a bunch of people who sent uh, poems by email to Danny Mask. I see a con- uh, contradiction poem from him. I saw him in the chat a bunch of times. Um, Joshua Fields. Let's see. Okay, so so for my poem this week, um, I thought that I would try to do the Brian Sonia Wallace thing and try my hand at that. So so what I did is, um, you know, what he does reminds me a lot of, which I didn't mention during the show, but it reminds me a lot of um, Humans in New- of New York, which um, if, you, if you're not familiar with that, um, it's, it's a guy who, a photographer, who interviews people and then takes a, a portrait of them. Um, and it started out on the streets of New York, so you'd sort of hear people's personal stories out in the street, and then he's gone all over the world. It's one of the most popular Facebook accounts, um, um, and, you know, really one of the most popular you know, things going on, sort of a new medium and um, so I thought that was very similar to kind of what Brian's getting at with his poems. So I went to um, um, the the Facebook page for Humans in New York, and I decided I would write a poem in 10 minutes um, based on whatever the first person said and uh, based on their story, as if I was writing a poem for them. And uh, so I tried to do that using these um, contradictions, like the prompt was saying, and um, it was hard. <laughs> it's not easy doing what uh, Brian Sony Wallace does. But here's my attempt. And it actually took, as, as my kids pointed out, I, they were watching in the back as I was doing it. And they said, you took 13 minutes, Dad. It wasn't 10. So they were, uh, they called me out. But this is a 13-minute poem, Alone Together. And this was a woman who, um, if you go to um, the Humans of New York Facebook page right now, it's the, the most recent one. It's a woman who... Um, You'll hear the story here, but she met her sort of best friend for life um, on her on her wedding trip or her honeymoon trip to Acapulco, and um, they both ended up getting divorced, but they're best friends forever now. And this is sort of her story with as many uh, oxymorons as I could squeeze in there. Alone together, it was an open secret, not the look on your face, but the rock on your finger. Happily married or just, same difference. Us two, a pair of pairs of jumbo shrimp halfway to nowhere, Acapulco. Our husbands were cliff dives into melted ice, a long trip down an escalator, all mud bath and freezer burn. Good grief. But there you were, like a fine mess of fuzzy logic, proving it all a deliberate mistake. Best friends forever, we'll take big sips of our cosmos and end on a relaxing hike. 
a tragic comedy crash landing on free love. That is my uh, attempt at doing what Brian Sony Wallace does, and I put it in a typewriter kind of font too, but man, that was hard. Uh, Megan's poem, as usual, is better than mine. This is Megan's poem for display. I think it's wax fruit was what she was going at, um, or maybe for display. But here it's for display. In the village, everything was made of wax. Nobody knew it. I'm as real as a pig in dirt, they would say. But it was all wax, the people, the buildings, the food. Only the fruit was real, but nobody would eat it because they said it tasted like wax. So that's Megan's poem for display from yeah, the uh, contradictions prompt for this week. And now it is your turn. Let's see what everybody else has to share with us today. Um, let's call up Sally Dunn first. And we will find Sally's poem as we go. Um, phone is ringing. And I have Sally's poem here. <clears throat> hey, Sally, how are you doing tonight? Doing okay. Um, and so what was your sort of contradiction? How did you approach this uh, prompt this week? Well, I started out with this basic simple idea of uh, plants growing in a greenhouse that didn't have any light and ended up with uh, kind of a um, – so I'll just read it. Um, the greenhouse. They grow under black painted glass, a pink sunflower a fruit tree laden with Christmas ornaments, a vine crawling the floor on millipede legs. They all suck life out of the body planted on the ceiling. Strapped to the ceiling, I writhe as they devour me. My pink-haired mother, my father with his ornaments passed down for generations, and him, he touches me everywhere with his fuzzy feet, down my throat, along my bones, swaggering through my veins. His mouth daintily sups on my heart, dabbing his mouth with a pure white napkin. My husband dines on me. My tears feed my mother, my father, and the faceless others thriving in dark corners. I know their names, all of them. They slipped into my life as if they had a right. I smile, the small smile of one whose secret is seconds from revelation. My tears are toxic, the meat of my heart poison. Their deaths are upon them. They died long ago. Oh, that was The Greenhouse by Sally Dunn. Very interesting, Sally. You, you kind of went deep with that, and, uh, and you, use your imagination there. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, thank you. Have a good night. You Oops, didn't mean to cut her off. Um, let's call up Brent, Brent, uh, Brent Stauffer. Except he's not answering. Where's Brent? Let's uh, we'll call Brent in just a little bit. Let's do um, let's do Carla Schwartz. So the phone's ringing for Carla. Hi. Hey, uh, Carla. Hi. How are you doing tonight? You how are you, Tim? I'm great. Yeah, I'm that, that was a, that was a very fun show. I really enjoyed it, and uh, looking forward to hearing your poem. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so this is. Um, it's called November Swim. And I, it was inspired by uh, swimming in cold water, which I do, and uh, the, the conflicts that you might feel uh, because you, and the, the one contradiction 
literal contradiction I put in there uh, is the word, the term frigid burn. Okay. Mm -hmm. So November swim. Quick, step back into the pond before you change your mind. Feel the chill seep in along your spine before the layer of water between skin and neoprene starts to warm. Turn your face toward whatever you dread. Skim your forehead through the surface as you stroke arm by arm. Know that for only moments, though moments linger on, you must endure the pain of frigid burn until, what is it, numbness? As you cross the barrier of time, of temperature, you feel the heat in your core. Excellent, Paul. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Okay. It reminds me of um, growing up, there was a Stony Brook Creek, which where the water was always 32.1 degrees. So it wasn't, and then we also, you know, all the kids would challenge themselves to jump in and swim to one side and back. Um, thanks for sharing that. It really brought back memories, Carla. Thank you, Tim. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, that's Nivedita's poem. Um, this is, of course, Nivedita Karthik, um, who lives in India. Um, and she's already at work now because it's, uh, it's about, what time is it, like 8 a.m. or something in India. But she wrote a poem called Contradictions. And um, let's share it for you now. This is Contradictions by Nivedita Karthik. Here we go. Contradictions. Oxymoronic contradictions exist. The biggest one yet is oxymoron. Others include def deafening silence, like the moment you realize your voice is worth no nothing, or the only choice, like the one you were given when asked to leave, or even the walking dead, which is how you feel as you step away, never to return. But life is now weirdly normal. Oxymorons exist all around, the boy with the warm chocolate eyes, but heart as cold as a glacier, the woman who wept tears of joy when she realized how awfully good it was to be left alone. Then, clearly confused, you look inside yourself, and that wide-open secret reveals itself, your oxymoronic self, for, although the brightest of smiles grace your face, the deadness in your eyes never fades away. It was Nivedita Karthik. Um, she's a graduate in immunology at the University of Oxford and works um, as a freelance editor and reviewer over in India. So uh, thanks for sharing that, Nivi. Always great to hear your poems. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Okay, so Brent's trying to call us back. Let me try Brent one more time. Let's see if this works this time. Here he is. Hey, how you doing today? Hello? Yeah, yeah, good. You're on. Oh, You're on. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for, for persevering. I don't know what was going on. Hey, no problem. It's, uh, uh, you know, the technology, uh, it's a miracle that it works. That's that's how I think every single day that we do this <laughs> show. We've done 67 shows, and I've never had a guest not work, you know? I, I don't know how, how it, like, it's just magic. It's like, um, like literal magic. Yeah. Oh, I... <laughs> I think I'm, I, yeah, that's right. Because, well, Arthur C. Clarke just described magic as technology we don't understand. Yeah. And this is that. This is definitely technology. It's a series of tubes <laughs> and our pictures yeah. across the tubes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, that guy that we all made fun of for saying that, yeah. that senator, uh -huh. turns out, turns out he was kind of right. He was, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. And that, that people who really know about this sort of thing all went, yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so so what do you got for us this is nietzsche and love okay yeah um i was in in the uh in the uh kerfuffle i have lost my glasses but i i will persevere as well um the uh the contradiction initially initially was simply that nietzsche was in a very happy period of his life when he wrote a book called the birth of tragedy and i thought well that's funny <laughs> yeah and and then i looked into the birth of tragedy which i have not read but i looked into it and it's about the um the birth of the the tragedy as a form in ancient greece and about how by embracing our suffering we can find meaning in our lives and even joy and i figure well that's pretty contradictory i was talking to my friend who says did you know that nietzsche was in love with wagner's wife hmm. i did not know who, that yeah who was the daughter of list by the way hmm. and uh so i'll wrap this up um it's it's about that triangle kind of, and it's about the contradiction of finding joy and suffering. Um, it's very referential, and I don't like referential poems, but I wrote one anyway. So, okay, well, so, let's see. So, Go ahead. Okay, here it is. <clears throat> How I chortled during the birth of tragedy. Every time Oedipus killed his dad, I guffaw. Of course, I wept and railed. You know me. But then, with a merry grin only scofflers can consistently achieve, I drink mightily ecstatic blood from the cup of old Dionysus. It took both hands to raise it to my grimace. Dance with me, bitterwise Schopenhauer. Shake those wispy white locks at the sun. The funeral bells tell me it's happy hour. Let's leave the widows to their lamentations. Agamemnon is setting fire to the old tower. Oh, Kosim, you married Wagner while I was at war. I laugh now and sing this song. You know what for. Excellent. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for sharing that, Brent. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Tim. I yeah. appreciate Take it. Take care. Good night. Thanks. Bye. Okay. So we got one last phone call uh, while we're talking to Brent. Let me make sure. Yeah. I think this is going to be the last one. It's a 215 number. We'll see who is there before we uh, call it a night. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, who am I talking to? I'm Joshua Fields. Hey, Joshua. Yeah, I thought so because you just sent your poem um, pretty recently. Yeah. Um, let me put it into a uh, a word doc really quick. There you go. Um, so, so what was your um, what was your contradiction? How, how did you approach this prompt? Um, oh, you know, hear myself. Approach- Hang on one second. I hear myself in the background. Can you click that out so it's not like like confusing like mute mute that okay much better perfect okay awesome yeah so 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 how did you approach this uh, prompt so i mean i took the prompt more to like a literal sense more of just things you know concepts in the world and ideas in the world so usually most of my poetry is just like really just like literal so like just to the point Excellent. Well, thanks so much. Um, let me put it up for everybody, and uh, go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay, awesome. So I just titled the, I kind of made the poem like last minute, so <laughs> I um, titled it Contradictions. 
I'll go ahead and read it. Yeah, go ahead. So it says, you want to talk about contradictions? I'm going to share with you. It's the life we live in. Like a heavy novel, turn the page, it's fiction. You never know what happens next. Make a prediction. Things that don't make sense, we make assumptions. Like a priest unfaithful to God that's unheavenly, trying to preach scripture but lacks loyalty. A cheating husband in a marriage, call it infidelity. Promised vows now broken, what stupidity. Bad leadership in a president, that's corruption. Talking smack on TV, bad influence, wicked seduction. Going hungry for the rich is total dysfunction. Complaints are common on the menu, no compassion. Being a doctor with no degree is a misunderstanding. Employment is competition. Sadly, it's tragic. A bright sun in the star night sky cannot happen. A solar eclipse is a thing scientifically fantastic. You can't say summertime in the winter. It doesn't function. Besides, snowmen don't swim well, personification. You see, many things seem to be opposites. Even when we speak, we can contradict. Makes the world confusing, complex, with no sense. But these are just thoughts I wrote, and that's past tense. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, Joshua Fields with Contradictions. Joshua, where are you calling from? I forgot to ask. Oh, I am calling from Maryland, but my number is from Philadelphia, so I'm originally from Philadelphia. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I'm so glad you could join us and share that. It's a great poem and and very different from the others. I love that. Thank you. Awesome. Have a good night. You too. Okay, that was Joshua Fields. Let me put him in the uh, our little contact list to make sure we know who he is next time. Always love first-time callers. Okay, um, and I believe that is our show for tonight. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I had a lot of fun with this episode, and I hope you did too. Um, now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be um, Steve Henn. And his, uh, he has a new book that just came out, and then his book before that, Indiana Noble Sad Man of the Year. Um, uh, Steve Henn is, is one of the, I don't know, we published him a whole bunch of times. He's, a, he's one of the, you know, one of the things that we look for in uh, poems a lot is humor, because it's hard to find humor. And we find a lot of humor in Steve Henn. And um, looking forward to talking to him next week. That is broadcast um, number 68, and I just realized I forgot to tell you the... Um, prompt poems let me tell you the prompt poem i caught myself in time the prompt for next week is going to be randomstreetview.com is a site that randomly generates photographs of streets all over the world find a photo that speaks to you there and write a poem about it so go to randomstreetview.com and it's uh, spelled just like it sounds randomstreetview.com find a picture there of a street view and uh, write a poem about that street view. So a kind of a classic poem, but a sort of a futuristic uh, street view version of uh, frastic poetry. This is exciting. I'm looking forward to this, uh, this prompt. It's going to be a lot of fun. So go to randomstreetview.com. Um, find a random photograph of a street view somewhere in the world. Uh, maybe like make the epigram or something where it actually is so that you know that would be cool. And then um, write a poem about that. So that will be your prompt for next week. And uh, once again, next week's guest is going to be Steve Head. Rattlecast number 68, the usual time, Tuesday, November 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you then. Uh, Hope you had a good night tonight, and I hope you have a good rest of your week. Good night.